From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast that looks backward to see into the future. Our idea is to put together scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events by looking at books that shape the world we inherited. Our topic today is the comic novel, its past, its future, and most importantly, its present. What do we read comic novels for? Do they comfort us? Do they unsettle us? Do they make us better? Do they make us worse? Are they the predecessor of sitcoms or a classier alternative to TV? Um, I'm sure that the answer to all those questions is probably no, but it will be revealed in the next half hour. And today I am a solo host, so hello, John Plotz, and I'm lucky to be joined by Steve McCauley. You probably know him as the author of a bevy of a raft of comic novels. They include uh, recent favorites like My Ex-Life, uh, which he had a wonderful interview about with uh, Terry Gross on Fresh Air, uh, Alternatives to Sex, and even uh, and Insignificant Others. Perhaps, like me, you have been his fan ever since uh, Object of My Affection, or perhaps you came on board more recently when he started publishing his Tales from the Yoga Studio series under the delightful pen name of Rain Mitchell. So I love every phase of uh, Stephen McCauley's career, and I'm really honored to uh, be speaking with him today. So, uh, Steve, welcome. Hello. Thanks, John. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're delighted with every phase of my career. I, I am. I'm not <laughs> delighted with any phase of my career, so <laughs> maybe well, think, but that I balances think it's the terminal one I'm going to like best, best of all. Yeah. yeah okay. um, <laughs> I really want the yoga series to have a, to be a very long and fruitful phase. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, I think that that phase has passed already, but really? we can get oh, to that later. Okay. Uh, my wife just signed us up for a gentle yoga class, so I, I think I definitely need something to guide oh, me into that okay. world. Yeah. Um, you know you know that I can barely touch my knees, right? So, really? Yeah. You are doing it now. Well, actually. I am touching my knees but now, but that's because I'm crammed into a chair. That's yeah. true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that helps. Um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, Steve and I uh, put our heads together and decided we would start in a curious kind of way today, which is to start by trading favorite lines from Barbara Pym whom we have both decided is, if not the queen of the comic novel, then at least one of its reigning monarchs. Okay, so Steve, can I start by asking you, why have we decided that, and, and who is Barbara Pym exactly? So Barbara Pym is a, a British novelist um, who had two interesting phases to her career. Um, she was born in 1913, I believe, and uh, she published six novels um, that were fairly successful. They were well-received. They had a readership. Yep. Uh, and then she wrote Starting her... in 1950, I think. Yeah. yeah. And she feel very much feels like a mid-century novelist to me, uh, you know, her sensibility and uh, pushing against more contemporary issues and, and themes in, in the later half of the century. Yep. But in any case, uh, she wrote her seventh novel, which is called An Unsuitable Attachment, and her publisher decided that it was not... Um, current enough that she didn't have an audience and he turned it down. It was turned down by many publishers. Um, and this kind of launched her into a, a period of kind of darkness, uh, both personal and professional. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was like in 1963, I think, that she wrote it. So I guess yeah. sort of the Beatles are big. Cars are suddenly painted bright colors right. in England and everybody is swinging. And yeah. they thought she wasn't swinging. And, these, and she 
indeed was not swinging. Yeah. She was writing about, you know, villages and curates and anthropologists and things that were not yeah. really of the moment, I suppose. Um, and uh, well, she, you could argue about anthropologists; those were kind well, of well, that's true. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not her anthropologist. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but 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 in any case, um, so uh, and then I, do you remember the year that this came out? There was the Times Literary Supplement in I think 1977 or 78, um, and they named. A, they asked a bunch of prominent writers and, and right. social critics. And, including Philip Larkin, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that was, well, so Quartet and Autumn, which is the first one after that, came out in 77. So maybe it was just before that. that yeah, the, so it was just before that. So maybe yeah. it was around 76. And the, yeah. they asked all these people to name the most underrated British novelist. And Philip Larkin and one other person both named Barbara Pym, yeah. which kind of inspired a lot of interest in her work. Yeah. And then she finally published this novel called Quartet and Autumn. Yeah. Um, and it, her career was revitalized. And that was the period in which I began reading her and in which a lot of Americans that I knew um, discovered her um, and and just became tremendously fond of her whole body of work. Yeah. So you mentioned really quickly the mid-century. So in other words, the people you think about with her first phase are someone like Muriel Spark. Is that right? Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Would that be a good comparison for what yeah, you know, she was writing with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that her name is sometimes mentioned with Muriel Sparks. I don't. I'm not sure yeah. it's quite. Muriel Sparks seems much more adventuresome stylistically, yes. and much more edgy in terms of what she does with characters. I yeah. think than Pym. Okay, so that's interesting. I kind of want to get back to that question of what the edge is because maybe we disagree about this. But part of what I love about comic novels is it seems to me that there really is an edge there, but it's just sometimes a little bit buried. And it's not necessarily there in the characters per se. In other words, the people's lives themselves may not be that yeah. grandiose, but right. the edge might be at a deeper level. But uh, Yeah. And I think it's also in the attitude toward their lives. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's this wonderful this probably her best known Barbara Pym's best known novel is called Excellent Women, mm-hmm. um, and this was her I believe it was her second second novel. published novel yeah 1952 yeah, yeah. yeah. and um, you know this is the narrator talking about herself I suppose an unmarried woman just over thirty who lives alone and has no apparent ties must expect to find herself involved or interested in other people's business and if she is also a clergyman's daughter then one might really say that there is no hope for her <laughs> and you know it's such a um, kind of sharp-eyed look at at the character character looking at herself yeah. um, and later she says you know um, she compares herself to Jane Eyre um, in what I think is a very amusing way, but I'm not sure I can find it right now. But anyway, yeah, actually, uh, one of the my favorite lines, since it seems like we've we've now started quoting favorite lines, one of the favorite lines that I was going to pick out from An Unsuitable Attachment, which, mm. as you said, Steve, is the one that kind of got her kicked to the curb originally, but then was reissued. Right. I think only after her di- after she only died. After her death, yeah. Right. So uh, also talking about a parish priest, although invariably kind and courteous, he had the air of seeming not to be particularly interested in human beings, a somewhat doubtful quality in a parish priest, though it had its advantages. <laughs> I, I just love the crisscrossing of that sentence. You know, it, yeah. it, it brings you sort of to the left bank and then back to the right bank and then back to the left bank again. Somewhat doubtful, though it had its advantages. Right. So it, it does... I, I think this really goes along with the point you're making about the attitude taken towards characters, even though they may be in a very 
banal and apparently benign setting. Yeah. But, you know, e- even those settings have their their uh, swift water and right. their dark places. Yeah. And, and this quality of being able to see uh, both sides or all sides of a person's character, I think, is very much... Barbara Pym. But what I was going to say, so, so you know, taking Jane Eyre or Middlemarch as our model, you know, these are novels that are, they're meant to be realist. I mean, they, they define the word realism. And yet, they're always about moral improvement, either the moral improvement of the characters who are supposed to have come to a better place in life, or implicitly, because the reader is meant to be, you know, improved out of their bad habits, mm. out of their laziness, out of their desire to sit around reading novels. You know, by the end of the novel, there's going to have been a nudge. It's kind of the difference between the is and the ought. Mm-hmm. Like, it opens up that space. And I do think that comic novels are so delightful for because they because they drop that moral pretense or something <laughs> like that. Like, yeah. they're not, they're not, they're not improving you. Yeah. Um, which is kind of what well, I was trying to get at, whether they're better than sitcoms, you know? I mean, I just think... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but sit, sitcoms can be so moral. You know, they can they have, can a, be they very have moral. a moral. You're right. It's like they have yeah. to... Be, it has to be redemption at so the end. So they're better by moral. not being moral, in other words, is what you're the saying. The comic novel. Yeah. The yeah. comic novel. I mean, and yeah. obviously we're talking in, you know, gross yeah. generalizations yeah. here. But, I mean, I think, yeah. I think that the... Uh, one of the reasons that comic novels can be so subversive is because they're not trying to do that. Yeah. And if you think about something like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes by Neil yeah. Luce, which yeah, was I'm published in the, that. Yeah, yeah. in the 1920s, yeah. and you have a character. I tried to write a novel about her once, actually. I love her. About Anita Luce? Yeah. Yeah, it was about her early days because, you know, she was in California just sending screenplays into Griffith trying to get them produced. And I think she actually sold them when she was about 14. Yeah, you know, she's a little bit older because she lied about her age. She actually didn't start selling them until she was like 21 or 22. She's from a theatrical family. Yeah, It's a really interesting story. In my novel, she meets Mark Twain uh, Uh on the Lower East Side in in 1905, which I don't (laughs) think actually did happen. But It might. But the point is that I think of her as taking the mantle of Mark Twain for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry. So go ahead. So needs, yeah, so, but Lorelai Lee, yeah. the character, the, That's the, a great the, the famous character yeah. of of uh, in Gentlemen for Blondes, is a is a gold digger. She is completely amoral. Uh, she is only out to improve herself in yeah. terms of wealth, and will just you know corrupt as destroy as many marriages and wreck as yeah. many homes as she possibly can. And you know, unlike say in Edith Wharton, where you know. I mean, there's no character quite like that in Edith yeah. Wharton, but yeah. nonetheless. No, but if Lily Bart, it, Lily Bart is on the rise. Yes, and, and then she must be punished, yeah. right? Chloral, um, chloral will be administered, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, um, but no, I mean, she yeah. triumphs, Lorelai Lee triumphs. So know? then Becky Sharp and, and Vanity who, Fair yes. is your, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, Lorelai. Well, I was just yeah. going to say, I mean, after yeah. all, she is the, the, the person who coined the yeah. phrase, you know, Anita Luce's, uh, j- uh, diamonds are a girl's best friend, yeah. right? which is pretty um, yeah. subversive. When you and did she coin it. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes also, or is that? Well, I mean, that's yeah. that's the title of the book. Yeah, right? but so, it was, it, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's hers. Okay. Yeah. We'll give it to her. Well, let's give it to um, her. Yeah. No, it's a really good point also about sitcoms um, needing to trot out the moral, the, the the big moral hammers at the end. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, so that really does make me think about Vanity Fair as the one 19th century realist novel that actually sort of refuses the moral improvement path. And uh, uh-huh. yeah, there's a super interesting story to be told about how like later novelists who loved Thackeray, I think, insisted on misreading him. So George Eliot, 
loves him. Trollope loves him. Charlotte Bronte loves him. But I don't think they get that, you know, anti-moral side to him. Yeah. 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 So, so wait, It'd be we... hilarious to think of Charlotte Bronte as a comic novelist. But she <laughs> loved, she dedicated, um, yeah. you know, Jan- Jane Eyre is dedicated to Thackeray yeah. because she said that Vanity Fair did what she wanted Jane Eyre to do. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. Huh. I agree. Maybe that gets to um, another thing, Steve, that you were interested in talking about, which is... Uh, whether the comic novel gets the respect it deserves. And maybe we could start by getting at a question that that you, I know, think about, which is like distinguishing the respect it gets in America versus the respect it gets in England. I mean, is that worth Mm. talking about? Who are the American comic novels? Like you mentioned in Need to Lose. Would you put, like, does Mark Twain fit in the comic novel? Because I was thinking, because he himself says he does humorous writing, not comical. He did. I don't know. What do you think? I really don't know because I I take his distinction seems really interesting to me. He says that comedy is where you basically have a gag and that humorous writing is more like getting into a particular voice and just extending that voice. Right. So, you know, even Huck Finn is humorous because you're sort of entering into the mind of Huck. Yeah. Um, And I kind of think that might be right. Uh Um. Though he's, in, I mean, he's incredibly funny on a line-by-line basis too. But I think he's not trying to do the same thing that comic novels are. Mm. But there aren't there scenes in Huck Finn that that seem sort of broadly a- comedic. Absolutely, I mean, yes, yeah. there are. So maybe he was just trying to distance himself from yeah. the scourge of being labeled a comic novelist. I, I think that makes <laughs> sense because there were these, you know, comic writers before him who he was trying to, uh, dis- yeah. Yeah, push away. Yeah. So what about somebody like James Thurber then? Well, it's, to me, he's, I mean, you know, he's more of a humorist. Uh-huh. I'm not sure really yeah. what the distinction is, if I could if I could really make it very precise. But yeah. it seems to me that um, what he was doing was a little different. Yeah. You know? So can I give you a James Thurber line that I was thinking about whether it applies to the yeah. comic novel or not? So Thurber said, the laughter of man is more terrible than his tears and takes more forms hollow, heartless, mirthless, maniacal. <laughs> is that too dark for you? No, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. He also said, here's another one that seemed to me to kind of get at what I love about comic novels. Man has gone long enough or perhaps too long without being man enough to face the simple truth that the trouble with man is man. Which I take to mean something like um, that you can outrun everything except yourself. You know, that, that, that a lot of novels that we call realist, including those novels that I love in the, you know, sort of George Eliot tradition have this vision that if you can just get far enough, then uh-huh. you don't, you will not carry your own troubles with you. Right, like right. all those things you didn't like about yourself can somehow be, yeah. you know, just shed. Right, right, right. Whereas the point of the comic novel is kind of like, uh, if you look behind you, your butt is still there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so it's No not... matter how fast you're going, your butt will still be the same distance from your mouth as it was before. Yeah. So there's that question of this, the kind of lack of redemption or... Yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah, right. something about just, I don't know, just that we're that we're earthy, you know, yeah. like it or not. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's interesting one of Barbara Pym's novels is called Less Than Angels, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I kind of feel like that's right. Like, yeah. more than dirt. Right. Like, we're not just dirt because then there wouldn't be anything to say. Yeah. But we're not angels either. Yeah. So. And the, and the, the shifts in her characters 
are very, very subtle. I mean, we don't see big changes in her characters, you know, from the beginning to the end. I mean, they open up just a little yeah. bit and, and let in maybe a little bit more light or a little bit more um, warmth, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but they're not completely transformed by their experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also think the other thing that's, that's, maybe this is a little off topic, but that's just so fascinating to me about having read a couple of her novels recently, yeah. reread, um, is the lack of um, what we typically think of as plot. Um, yeah. That they are just... They're, they are almost like these anthropological studies of a period of time within a village and yeah. observations of the people's behavior. Yeah, yeah. So so I have another line that sort of goes to that. And then I have a question to ask you, which is basically like how important the sentence is in the comic novel mm. or whether anything else is as important as the sentence. Okay, so this is a line which is, you know, one of the young men who may or may not be involved with it's about he's just seeing a woman he might be interested in. The heavy scent she wore tantalized him because it was one he knew, though he could not remember its name. So, okay, so so far that could be a sentence from like any realist right. novel, any mystery, any romance, anything. Though he could not remember its name, whether it was an evocative French phrase or a downright English word like carpet or swamp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just... So we're like I was talking about that other sentence that kind of crisscrosses. I, this right. one to me, it's more just like it lands with a thump. Yeah. You know, like you think you're gliding through a gentle forest glade, and then right. you, you smack into a concrete wall. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Carpet or swamp. Yeah, and so. I mean, in terms of the sentence, it's like those those words are just so perfectly yeah. chosen, right. and and they they not only because of what they you know, refer to in yeah. concrete terms, but also just the sound of the yeah. words. Yeah, and, good diphthongs. Know. Like yeah. Swamp, Swamp has two good yeah. diphthongs in it. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, so my question is for that it is whether what's satisfying in Barbara Pym is just really funny sentences or whether it's what the funny sentences are doing. I mean... I mean, you know, I think it's both, right? Because yeah. I think that she both has this... Um, phrasing that is very um, well chosen and I'm sure it does not trip off the top of the tongue yeah. as they appear to be on the page um, but also that you know what you just read reveals something about the character reveals something about uh, their attitude towards themselves as a British person yeah. you know, etc. Um, so I think it's both I think, and I think it has to be both or else to have the depth of um, comic um, resonance and also just kind of, you know, human, um, I don't know, observation that, yeah. that her novels have. So this is a totally banal question, but do you think there's a limit to how long a comic novel can be? I can't help noticing how short they no. are. There's I, a limit to how, how long hers can be. Yeah. I mean, Vanity Fair is... Yeah, pretty long. It's true. <laughs> I know. Yeah, <clears throat> I guess Shandy I'm not. Con with... Tristan Shandy. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's a gag book, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So let me ask it another way. Like James Thurber. I mean, there's many reasons that Thurber doesn't fit, but partly he was a sketch writer, basically. Yeah. So I'm just thinking there's a way in which it's it's not easy to write 20 pages worth of funny material. I mean, I can't do it, but yeah. I mean. A lot of people have done it. Like yeah. on the, if you think about the New Yorker, is full of 
brilliant writers who can sustain something for 15 pages. Right. But Barbara Pym and you, and we're about to get to you, like mm-hmm. are people who can write novels that are, you know, 200 pages long. And that's, so I'm, I guess I'm flipping the question of the length, but I mean, it, it does seem like it's rare to be able to pull it off well, maybe, for maybe, a novel length. Well, maybe, well, sure. I mean, anything is difficult to pull off for, for an extended period of time. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the, the novel that I have read most recently that just exhausted me with its comic brilliance yeah. is The Sellout yeah. by Paul Beatty. And I, yeah. and that, and I wish Elizabeth Ferry were here because yeah. she completely agrees with you. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And that, I mean, almost to the point where, okay, I just had to put, put the book yeah. down and say, I give up, you know, because know. it's like every sentence is so brilliant right. and so witty and so um, extraordinarily well-constructed to both make a point, which is invariably extremely subversive, yeah. and also hilariously funny, although you find yourself, like, wary of laughing at it sometimes. Um, but, you know, yeah. it's rare to be able to sustain that for that. Yeah. So long. do you have a thought about that? I mean, again, this is another version of the question about, like, you know, carpet or swamp. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I um, you know, I just have this image of... Um, Barbara Pym doing stand up in some club in up you know in, in nor- That'd the be north north of England in Bradford yeah um you know I, I got a I got a lot of great material here but somehow it isn't just that she she strings together those I, I take your point you're saying that the sentences work because they're funny in their own terms but they also go to revealing something about yeah, the way this character sees the world as distinct from how all the people around them see I it. I think in the case of Pym, maybe even more so than in the case of um, the sellout, uh, is that um, it's all about the context of the characters and the world that she has created for them. Um, and that's yeah. what makes it funny, is the, the context of their relationships with each other, um, what they overlook what they refuse to discuss uh, and so on. To me, that's that's crucial. So I, I don't think of her as being a stand-up you know, yeah. person at all. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, would you say, what about Philip Roth, for instance? You know, like Portnoy's Complaint is, is basically a 300-page stand-up routine. Right. It's a 300-page Lenny Bruce yeah. routine. Only actually funnier, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so does he count? So is that a comic novel then? Oh man, I think so. Oh, that's so yeah. interesting. Yeah, don't you? It's so terrible to admit, but I've never been able to finish that book. I mean, really? there's I like his later ones. Yeah, like uh, you know, I like Exit Ghost, for example. Yeah. I mean, I like the ones. So it's not that I don't like him when he's being sharp and sort of one-linerish, but I feel like Philip Roth is better. I, I don't know. I love American Pastoral. Mm-hmm. Like I love it. I think he's better when he turns that um, that wit into something. I feel like he, sometimes Philip Roth is stacking up razor blades. Like sometimes mm-hmm. he's just cutting. Mm-hmm. And Portnoy's complaint to me is just like it feels like flailing. I believe you that it isn't. But but when I read American Pastoral, I feel like it's it's actually like adding up to something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Portnoy's Complaint, I think one of the great things about Portnoy's Complaint is that it feels, and I believe this is how it was written, supposedly, was just someone sitting down and ranting, you know, for 
however long right. it took him to get out the first draft of yeah. that novel. Yeah. Um, and it and that too is an incredibly exhausting novel. And you know the yeah. last line of the novel, the last word is this you know kind of cry in front of the therapist, right? And you, as a reader, you share that feeling like, ah. Yeah. Okay, but so this is great, because I would have said, um, like if we think about Barbara Pym, she's not exhausting. Like there's lots of things. No. You, it's, it's comforting, right? It's I more mean, subtle. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and I it's think subtle, one of the... but it's also not raw. I mean, it doesn't feel... It... Well, there's a kindness to yeah. it at the same time that I think she is misunderstood and... Sometimes I will say to people, oh, have you read Barbara Pym? And they say, oh, is she that like cozy writer with the kind of- Yeah, I didn't mean cozy. The book covers that look like wallpaper and so on. Yeah. And which is what they do look like. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) But but, um, she's not at all, you know, because she is so um, incisive and because she's really quite critical and there's a real darkness there. And if it weren't for the funny twist and, you know, of the carpet and so a lot of these people's lives might be considered tragic. Right. Um, But- um, what was your question? <laughs> well, I mean, no, the question is like whether the rawness of that kind of cry at the end of Portnoy's complaint and the subtleness of Barbara Pym are like on the same spectrum or not. And I hear what you're saying. You're saying that it's a subtler kind of um, of uh, vinegar that she's yeah. dispensing. But I almost feel like it's vinegar she's made into lemonade. Like I, to me, the comic novel, it, it's it's hit the sweet and sour balance, yeah. right? Right. Um, and it's not cozy, but I think you can say that something is comforting without it being cozy. Like Absolutely. there's lots of novelists I find incredibly comforting to read. Yes, and in fact, I know that you're not fond of this this author, but yeah. um, I'm equally obsessed with Anita Bruckner, mm. um, who writes who wrote 27 novels, I believe, and they are about they're all basically about loneliness, yeah. you know, about some form of loneliness, kind of lives that have not advanced in the way that the character hoped that they would advance and so on and so forth. Um, It is the opposite. And she has a very bleak vision. Um, She's witty. She's not exactly, she's certainly not comic and she sometimes is funny. Right. But anyway, um, a friend who I've, you know, turned on to her, we all say the same thing. This is like the least comforting worldview you can imagine. And yet there's something tremendously comforting about opening up one of her books and entering that world again. And yeah. that is somehow familiar, that right. you're in control of this beautiful... You feel as if this writer has this tremendously um, great grasp of language. Yeah. And I feel the same way with, with Pim. So maybe maybe Witty is an indispensable part of being a comic novelist, but it's not... By itself, it doesn't make you a comic novelist. In other words, there's lots yeah. of people who are witty who aren't writing comic novels, but it's hard to imagine... Yeah, like Henry James, maybe, yeah. you know? <laughs> but it's hard well, to imagine... I actually imagine, think right? Beast in the Jungle yeah. is hilarious. Yeah. So what about Mary McCarthy, then? Because she's, to me, feels the way you're describing Anita Bruckner. Like, I, do you feel... I, comf- think, I think Mary McCarthy is more... It's too sardonic. Yeah, I think it's way more sardonic. Yeah, it can't be a comic novel. It's that sardonic, yeah. It's funny, I'm well, actually... Yeah. but I think she's... I mean, I don't know, the group. I mean, yeah, that's pretty satirical. Right? Yeah, it's satirical. I'm yeah. struggling with this right now because I'm writing, trying to write about both um, comical science fiction and satirical science fiction. Uh-huh. And my idea is that those two things are close to each other. And last night, Lisa just looked at me and she's like, w- I mean, like, why would you assume that satire and comedy are the same thing? You know, so, uh, yeah. It's a good distinction. Mm. Um, 
Okay, well, it's true I don't like Anita Bruckner, Steve, but I do really like uh, this guy, Steve McCauley. Oh, so okay. let's talk about him. Um, okay, I'm just going to read the first line of Object of My Affection. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read the first line, and then I'm going to also, um, sorry, spoiler alert, but I'm going to read the last line of the novel, too. And I'm actually going to try not to give away all the plot details of your novel, because if people haven't read it, it's so great, and they should go out and read it. So, but... I'm never bothered by spoilers. Oh, really? I mean, I, I okay. Don't I, like, I don't read because I want to, f- right. you know, I, if I know what's going to happen at the end of a book, it doesn't spoil it for me. Okay. Um, all right. Well, and uh, I don't remember I'm what just... happens at the end of this yeah. one. So, you know. <laughs> Actually, one of the things that really made me mad at the movie is that they don't end up in the right in the right ride in the movie they end oh, up riding yeah. a roller coaster but okay. I think it's so great that they end up riding the octopus at the end of the yeah, yeah. of the book but okay so first couple of lines Nina and I have been living together in Brooklyn for over a year when she came home one afternoon announced she was pregnant tossed her briefcase to the floor and flopped down on the green green vinyl sofa as if I don't have enough problems with my weight already she said Nina's lower lip was thrust out, but I couldn't tell from her expression if she was genuinely upset, so I used my standard tactic for dealing with anything unexpected. I changed the subject. I pointed out a water stain on the hem of her dress and passed her half the sandwich. We're out of ketchup, I apologized. There's this um, sort of Bergsonian quality to humor that humor, the humor of life is like seeing us all sort of attached to as repetitive machinery like where we just keep doing the same damn stuff over and over yeah that when yeah. that when people begin acting like mechanized dolls that um that that is there's something inherently funny in that i mean that's this yeah. bergsonian idea of comedy um yeah. and and that is certainly i think in pym in that these characters stick so much to their uh, limits and yeah. their views of the world. You know, yeah. the cat lady, yeah. Um, yeah. which is, is runs throughout many of her books, yes. uh, that person. Um, Why That is such a good gag. It's like a perennially good gag. It's like in, in yeah. uh, Unsuitable Attachment, right. you know, every time you think she's about to say something serious, it turns into a remark about uh, horse about meat for the cat. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right, yeah. 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 And and it's um, and I wonder if she intentionally did that like with all of her books as a yeah. know, cat person in there. If it's just anyway, but um, so you're saying that begins funny and ends sad. That well, well the fact you know that, what it does in life. Yeah, it does in yeah. life. If you don't change, yeah, you know, then yeah, yeah. I think you're you're headed for a kind of sadness. Um, yeah, certainly. Um, but I I think, I mean, just in my own sense of what I want to do in my books is to have the characters face something and then change as a result of it and understand that there are consequences for either pushing away the discussion about the pregnancy, you know, uh, and talking about the absence of ketchup in the house um, that, you know, you do that for long enough and then you kind of have to pay for it eventually. And then things get a little bit sadder and darker. Yeah. And so, to me, that's very satisfying. You know, yeah. it's very satisfying to write. That seems to go against Northrop Fry's definition of comedy. Because mm. his definition of comedy is that comedy is basically um, the genre where, through a totally unforeseen set of circumstances, we arrive at a happy ending. Like, in other words, mm. it, you know, if it if if Romeo and Juliet are in the tomb and he takes the poison, uh, boy, that's that's tragedy. But right. if he figured out just in time not to take the poison or the poison was sugar water, then it would be comedy. Like that's the North of Pride definition is yeah, that yeah. it's all about the 
upbeat outcome. Mm -hmm. But you just gave a totally persuasive description of what you do, which is almost like the opposite, which is that it's really witty all throughout, and it's really funny all throughout, but it actually ends sadder than it began because it ends with us being able to see the limits of these people. Well, I mean, you know, by that strict definition, then, yeah, I mean, yeah. then they're not comic novels, really, because yeah. because they always, I mean, my books always have a kind of a bittersweet ending yeah. where there's something, just because I don't believe life turns out that way, you know, usually, that there's a there's a blend of happiness and yeah. sadness and... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I think. A blend not reflected in the film version of Object of My Affection. No, but, you know, they did film the ending that I wrote. Um, really? And they screened it yeah. and for focus groups, and everybody yeah. hated it. Yeah. So they put on this kind of upbeat, unambiguous yeah. ending. Yeah. Unlike the French Well, I call it, it's like the Brooklyn Heights dog and pony show. They were like, and yeah. we're all together. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah. Yeah, like it's not enough to have uh, you know they had to they had to make it racially mixed. They right. had to make it uh, you know right. sex positive choice mix. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and you know, and that's and that's the Hollywood movie, and, yeah. and that 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 creates a certain kind of satisfaction for the viewer for sure. Yeah, but so, I was saying that I've had these two French adaptations yeah. of my novels too, yeah. and they you know, make the endings even more ambiguous. Interesting. You know, they, they don't want any kind of resolution at the end of them. So. So, so I was thinking of a really weird analogy as I was finishing Object of My Affection. Again, I, I'm even though you don't care about spoilers, I do. So, But I'll just say one of the things that's great about the novel to me is that you can't, it, do, it, it, it resists the temptation to put people into the box, which is either, oh, happy homosexual pair, happy heterosexual pair, or, you know, Busted, you know, uh, busted, you know, failed love. It mm -hmm. actually explores the ways in which people can be different things to one another. So you can right. have a friendship which isn't based on the, you know, the set of phrases that you've been handed right. already. And so here's the crazy analogy I thought of, um, which is uh, Jude the Obscure, um, <laughs> which ends a lot darker than any of your books do. Uh -huh. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this Thomas Hardy novel, which is really about what it means to want to be friends with someone but not actually be married to them you know like to have a relationship that is neither um one thing or the other right um is that i mean is that a is that an is that a thing for you steve is that a, something you're interested in that yeah way i mean like, that's yeah. that's like what my most recent novel my ex-life yeah. is it's about a relationship that is neither one thing yeah. nor the other you know it's like a previously married couple who reconnects 30 years later and you know he's gay they know it's not going to be a sexual relationship they're not unlike an object of my affection where at least half half the couple you know would like it to be um, that isn't the case, and their needs are different now. Their expectations are different for relationships, and so they're trying to construct something yeah. that's more interesting. Um, I, maybe not more interesting, but maybe the word is just um, more doable for their particular yeah. um, qualities as individuals. And honestly, you know, I think that's how a lot of relationships end up anyway. You know, yeah, it's like it's the. Um, companionship and that sort of thing. Yeah. So. so, okay. So, final comic novel twist on that is that they're going back to that Northrop Fry idea. That makes Northrop Fry's idea makes the basic genre of the comic novel seem kind of basic. It's about girl gets boy, girl doesn't get boy. It's courtship. 
it ends with the happy marriage. And when it ends, it ends with the, and they lived happily ever after. That's the Northrop Pry version of what the genre is doing. But what you've been describing, not just for your own writing, but I mean, just looking back to Barbara Pym or to mm. Anita Anita Luce or other people we've talked yeah. about that you love. Other Anitas. Other Anitas, yeah. <laughs> it seems like actually, you're actually arguing the opposite, which is that the comic novel works because it allows you to see people in their neither one thing nor the otherness, right? That, that, in other words, that there's the there's the generic solution out there, but in real life, people don't find that solution. They find some other solution. They're... Yeah, and maybe that makes the, the some of these novels that we've been talking about less satisfying for certain kinds of readers. Like the students of mine who are complaining that the books aren't funny enough, yeah. um, maybe that's what they are looking for. They're looking for a Hollywood rom-com. And there are plenty of novels that would fit that bill. Um, just for me, they're maybe you know, a little yeah. bit uh, less interesting. And I also think, though, that as a writer, and frankly, as a reader, too, one of the nice things about not being a critic and not reading a whole lot of critical work of that sort is that you don't have to fit into these definitions. You don't have to try yeah. to. You know, you can just, um, you know, invent whatever feels right for the characters in your particular yeah. voice. Yeah. So could you imagine a novel called Carpet or Swamp? <laughs> <laughs> I, but yeah. I, I mean, I agree. Like by William S. Burroughs yeah. or someone, you know? <laughs> but I mean, I agree with what you're saying, Steve, but I also think it's something more than that. I think you're saying, I, I think it's, I mean, at least I'm convinced from this conversation that, that what makes the comic novel so satisfying isn't just that it might or might not happen to fit into those formats. It's that it actually allows you to see life just to see the way that life doesn't actually fit into those forms. Like, we're handed mm -hmm. those forms. I mean, you know, everyone knows the kind of Anne Hathaway, you know, princess movie version of what you're supposed to be like when you're grown up. And then you grow up and you fall in love with somebody or you fall out of love with somebody and you realize, oh, well, wait a second, it doesn't look like that. It looks like it's kind of like the first cousin of that. Yeah. And the comic novel seems to be sort of committed to saying, well... Actually, yeah, if you look at people in their quirkiness and the fact that they have their own bodies and their own habits and their own, you know, things that they're kind of ashamed of, but they keep doing them anyway. Right. Like, that's what we all are. And, uh, you know. Yeah. And so. that's kind of the beauty of it, I guess. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think, too, like, I mean, I, I recently read a comic novel that um, ends very happily and for me unconvincingly and it was one of these novels that I threw across the room yeah. because I felt like you know I've invested all this time in these characters and in this world and and it, it's it's not the ending wasn't earned the happiness yeah. of the ending wasn't earned I would much rather have seen an unhappy ending although it was outside of the convention that this novel was clearly working in yeah yeah, yeah. Um, hey and speaking of conventions Steve didn't you want to um put in a plug for a Barbara Pym convention? Yeah, Barbara Pym, Barbara Pym has maintained a, a, a long-standing kind of cult following um, many years after her death. Well-deserved. Yes, and the yeah. Barbara Pym Society, which you can find online, um, has, uh, I think, three conventions a year, one of them in Boston, yeah. on the weekend of March 22nd, 2019, uh, at the Harvard Law School, and people present papers and uh, about her work. So, I love that. Yeah. That sounds great. Where do you go? Um, 
I don't know. I really, really have to read Sweet Dove Died. Yeah. And I also now have to reread Less Than Angels because uh-huh. um, what you were saying about the, I was just remembering how uh, satisfyingly unsatisfying the ending of that novel is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if people are talking about those ones, sure. Okay. Sure I would go, yeah. Um, I would go to a Muriel Spark Society meeting too, though. So. Yeah. And well, I and I'm also a fan of the Doris Lessing novels that you make fun of in uh, Object of My Affection. So. Oh right, <laughs> without having read. <laughs> I must Don't say. admit that on tape. Uh, I know. No, um, okay, so Steve, this has been an awesome conversation, and as you know, we conclude um, with recallable books, which is basically a recommendation for further reading on the topic. I got to say, this whole discussion has been like a set of recommendations for mm. me. I have like 20 more books to read now, mm. but. Um, as with all the books that we discussed today, we're going to, you know, recommend a couple of books and then there will be links to those on our website along with other material for people who want to explore this topic further or, uh, people who want to write in and tell us what they thought about, you know, their definition of the comic novel. So, um, so Steve, can I ask you what book you're going to plug for recallable books? Yeah, I'm going to plug a a very dangerous book. Oh, good. Um, that was originally published around, I think, 1974. It's called After Claude, and it was written by Iris Owens. Um, oh, my God. I've never heard of it. And it was recently, or maybe within the last six years, let's say, reprinted by uh, New York Review Books. Yeah. Um, and it is a a very extreme novel in many ways. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, my definition of it is it's like a Gene Reese novel yeah. with... This killer sense of humor, which Gene Reese novels yes, not <laughs> do so not much. have, yeah. um, and and this novel turns extremely dark and um, forbidding, sort of two thirds of the way into it. Yeah, um, um, wow, I can't wait. Okay. Yeah, and she she's a very interesting character. She used to write um, kind of high toned erotica for the Olympia Press in oh Paris yeah. under the uh, pen name Harriet Daimler. Um, and she's a fascinating woman. She only wrote wow. one other novel under the under her real name, which was Iris Owens. Wow. Um, and um, and and this is a book that I've been like giving to people for years, long before it was reprinted. Yeah. Um, and probably like forty percent of them would say, "Oh my God, that book is amazing! Yeah. I love that book." And at least sixty percent would say, "Why did you even think that this would interest me? This yeah. is a disgusting, horrible novel." Et yeah. So. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and I'm going to plug um, an academic novel, which is Randall Jarrell, Pictures from an Institution. Oh, yeah. do, do you like that one? Yes, yeah. I love that one. Um, I think it's an amazing comedy. And I think there's a – we probably don't have time to talk about it, but it's a response to Mary McCarthy's Groves of Academe, and it includes like an unbelievable portrait of a novelist writing a comic novel, um, this woman Gertrude, who is at the heart of – who is meant to be Mary McCarthy and is kind of at the heart of Randall Jarrell's novel – um, I I don't know. I have so many great lines from it, but I guess uh, I guess the one I want to emphasize is that um, it it sort of has to do with this notion um, of being able being able to figure out what makes a place different from other places, and um, so at one point the novel says the people of Benton, like the rest of us, were born, fell in love, married, and died, lay sleepless all night, saw the first star of evening, and wished upon it, won lotteries, and wept for you, but not at Benton. So the idea is, yes, fine, life is the same everywhere, but actually, it's different everywhere too. Like yeah. no one place is like any other place, and I think 
um, yeah, it's a novel. I, uh, it, it, you know, Robert Lowell reviewed it when it first came out and said it's an inspired joke book. Mm-hmm. And I get that it is a joke book, yeah. but I feel like it, it, I mean, it's what's inspired about it is so much more than it just being a joke book. Well, it's funny when yeah. I read The Sellout, I was thinking yeah. the only thing that I can compare it with in the terms of the um, line by line intensity of yeah. the, you know, comic insight was um, Pictures from an Institution. Yeah. So. Awesome. Um, okay, so Steve, thank you so much. It's been Thanks. a huge Thanks, pleasure. And um, I'll just uh, end by saying that Recall This Book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with Public Books, and it's recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library by uh, Plotz, Ferry, and also a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Sound editing is by Anil Tripathi. Production assistance from Matthew Schratz. Mark DeLello oversees and advises on technological matters, and we appreciate the support of Brandeis generally and specifically of uh, the university librarian Matthew Sheehy and the dean Dorothy Hodgson. We always want to hear from you with uh, your comments, criticism, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media or our website, which is recallthisbook.org. And finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, which include topics like opiate addiction, minimalism, old and new media, and also a a lovely recent interview with Madeline Miller, the author of Circe. Upcoming episodes will include a conversation with Samuel Delaney, uh, another science fiction author, who Steve probably also hasn't read <laughs> and a disc- oh you have good <laughs> alright <laughs> I love that guy and a discussion of animals poetical and otherwise with the poet David Ferry and the biologist E.O. Wilson and also a recall this book first which is a collaboration with Harvard's Mahindra Humanities Center on uh, the topic of distraction so for all of us here thanks for listening today 